Good morning. Today we are beginning a new uh, series of lectures on major issues in medieval Jewish philosophy. This morning I would like to, as an introduction, concentrate on the importance of studying Jewish philosophy. It's not a simple question, not one that has an obvious answer. And in fact, as I'm sure we all know, there's been a great deal of controversy over the ages about the importance, and perhaps more importantly, even the permissibility of the study of Jewish philosophy. In the Middle Ages, there were two great outbursts of uh, controversy, of dispute, even violent dispute, which centered on the writings of the Rambam, which is called historically the Maimonidean controversy. And while many of the issues were directed specifically to the Rambam's writings in the Moran of Uchim, but naturally the uh, discussion continued to the benefits and this benefits and, 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 and injury that could arise from the study of any sort of Jewish philosophy, meaning the use of one's mind, the use of reason to try to understand the basis for our faith and our beliefs. Obviously, if we're studying the great Jewish writers of the medieval period, all of them are adherents of the study of Jewish philosophy. This is not as uh, simple as it might sound. There are undoubtedly great Jewish figures in the Middle Ages who were opposed to not only the study of official Jewish philosophy, I mean those books which are called Jewish philosophy because they adhere to a certain kind of intellectual basis, which in the Middle Ages basically meant a Sertilian philosophy, but they themselves undoubtedly using reason and their mind to try to understand. A prominent example would be perhaps the Ramban. But there undoubtedly were other Rabbanim who thought you shouldn't use reason at all. You should believe what your mother taught you or your father taught you and engage in other sorts of intellectual activity. They would learn Torah but not engage in, in, in rational understanding of the tenets of, of the Jewish religion. However, generally speaking, people who have that attitude towards Jewish philosophy don't write lengthy books describing their belief, because there's not that much to say. Those great works of Jewish philosophy which we are familiar with, the Sajigon, the Kuzari, the Rambam, the the writings of the Ramban, the Rabbanel, are obviously people who believe in some sense in the importance of rational understanding. That's why they could write about it. If you don't believe in rational and the rational enterprise of understanding Jewish religion, you're not going to write a long book describing and defending your attitude towards, towards Jewish philosophy. So the odds are stacked somewhat in favor of Jewish philosophy and its importance, Jewish machshava in a wider sense, machshavet Yisrael in the wider sense, the odds are stacked somewhat in favor of its adherence, 
because we relate to the written to the written record, to the books, the Pirushim, which elaborated on intellectual Jewish understanding. And therefore, it is important to, at least before we begin, to consider the uh, two sides of this question, historically and uh, theoretically and intellectually, before we actually begin what will naturally be in the course of the uh, coming months, will be a positive evaluation of the importance of, uh, of Jewish philosophy. The question that I think we have to ask, and I would like to assume that we would give a better answer to this question at the end of the lectures that we are giving. In other words, I really, I personally really believe that the shared enterprise that we are going to be doing now, understanding different issues, debating different issues, will in fact, my personal belief, will add to our faith, to the depths of our relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, and that is why I think it's important, not as an intellectual exercise, but as part of a relationship with God. But the question we're asking is, is that true? Does understanding, does the use of reason add to faith? Add to a relationship with the Creator? Or not? Or even more extremely, does it detract from the relationship with God? I'd like to list some of the negative answers which have been given to this question. Put them on the table so that we should be aware of them. The most common uh, argument, and one that I think a lot of people feel, is that philosophical understanding in almost all cases introduces doubt into one's faith and therefore weakens, weakens faith. A very prominent and well-known historical example of this argument was given after the expulsion from Spain, after Gerus Sfarad. We think of the expulsion from Spain, but in fact, we don't know the exact numbers, but enormous numbers of Jews were not expelled from Spain because they agreed to convert. Hundreds of thousands. No one knows for sure. But historians assume that something in the area of 50% of the Jews in Spain stayed in Spain and to one extent or another accepted conversion. Rabbi Yosef Yabetz, writing a few years after the expulsion and raising the question which undoubtedly uh, was found in the hearts and the minds of all of those who had left Spain, why did this happen to us? How is it that this tremendous catastrophe, the greatest catastrophe that took place to any Jewish community since the destruction of the Temple, how did it happen? And if Yosef Yabetz's answer was it happened because of Jewish philosophy. He explicitly compared the faith of Spanish Jewry to the faith of Ashkenazi Jewry, which for years before, a hundred years at least, before Spanish Jewry, 
had been subjected to different sorts of persecution different sorts of pressure to convert and generally speaking had not done so but had uh, in many cases gone to their deaths or fled eastward to Poland but the widespread phenomenon of Shlad of conversion was basically unknown and the Yosef Yavid said the difference between us and Ashkenazi Jews us meaning Sparadim he was a Sparadim the difference between us and Ashkenazi Jewry was that they did not learn for us being we did and he said, and the Jewish philosophy had implicitly weakened the entire Jewish community. Not merely those people who had studied Jewish philosophy and had become heretics and had become kosher, which there were examples of. Not merely those who said, when I read their books or writings, I said, that's wrong. But even those who were, when they studied philosophy, had been ostensibly good and believing Jews, but he said in the times of pressure, in the times of crisis, in the times of trial, they had failed. At that moment in 1492, when Isabella and Ferdinand said to them, either convert or leave, so it's a practical problem. You don't want to leave not because of the philosophical uh, belief that Spain is an important country, but because it's difficult. But their faith had been weakened by two centuries of philosophical discussion, the intellectual milieu that based one's belief in God and one's connection to the Jewish religion on philosophical abstracts was inherently too weak to stand up to the crisis. As opposed to those Jews, sinful Jews, in France and Germany, who had spent their intellectual time studying Torah, and in times of crisis had been willing to forfeit their lives, with the Deshet Shem Shemayim, and to die Al-Kidush Hashem. This is basically a, a psychological or a psycho-intellectual argument. And it undoubtedly has a great deal of truth. One cannot simply reject it out of hand. One, because of the historical record that Yosef Yavitz mentions, I think because we all understand that there's some, some truth to this. That someone who is able, how one does this is a different question, but someone who is able to achieve a deep sense of faith irrespective of intellectual arguments, has a very, very strong faith when measuring simply strength, the ability to withstand pressure. The question is, of course, how one reaches that level, as well as whether strength alone is the only thing which interests us. In times of crisis, perhaps that's true. We basically want to know, or a person wants to know for himself, will I withstand the trial? Will I remain true to the tradition of my fathers and to my belief in God? But there are, I think, other measures of faith which relate not merely to strength but to depth. And to those are the measures this argument doesn't uh, attach itself or doesn't even address itself at all. A second argument is more extreme. The second argument argues that essentially 
reason and faith are opposed. Why is this? There's a popular and widespread conception that faith by definition, emunah by definition, is the belief in things which cannot be proven. We wouldn't use the word emunah, we wouldn't use the word faith to describe my belief that I am now standing in a room. I know I'm standing in a room. I don't believe I'm standing in a room. We only use the word faith and belief for those things which in some sense are unknown or are unknowable or beyond rational or clear knowledge. You don't believe the sun is shining. But you believe that there is a God in the heavens. And this is not merely accidentally true, but some people would argue that this is essentially true, that the, the value of faith if you want to say the mitzvah of faith, the value of faith is found precisely in that it involves a leap into the unknown. The term a leap into the unknown was introduced and popularized by, not by a Jew, by Saran Kierkegaard. But the idea has a great deal of attraction for many, many people and I think it's found, at least in minor discussions, of Emunah as well. Even a moderate familiarity with medieval philosophy and medieval Jewish philosophy uh, will definitely lead one to the conclusion that the Rishonim didn't think so. Obviously the Rambam didn't think so. The Rambam thought the exact opposite. The Rambam thought that you can only believe in the true sense of the word emunah in that which has been proven, which is as clear to you as that one and one is two. Everything else, the Rambam says, is merely opinion. And I stress the word merely, merely opinion. I believe, believe is a weak word, I believe that Chinese live in China. I don't know it. And therefore, if you only believe there is a God, but you don't know there is a God, the Ram says your Emunah is deficient. The Ram is a relatively extreme approach, we'll discuss this in one of the coming weeks. But even the other we've shown him, it's very hard to find someone who would see the value of belief as being based on its non-provability. Nonetheless, I think we have to consider this possibility. It definitely appeals psychologically to many of us. When we see somebody who insists on believing despite the indications or apparent truth to the contrary, we do tend to admire that. And it is true that in the modern world, irrespective of truth, but in the modern world with intellectual climate is inimical to religious belief. There's no question that we tend to value very much and to stress the importance of one believes despite the, I wouldn't say the illogical, the illogic in believing, but definitely the not accepted way of thinking. To be a believer in God on academic uh, campuses in the Western world is not an irrational endeavor, but surely one which goes against the intellectual milieu and which is virtually accepted. And to some extent, we've developed a, perhaps only as a defensive measure, where we've developed a step that says, and that's what's so beautiful about it, 
don't go along with the common herd, you don't go along with intellectual currents, you believe in what you believe because you know it's true, not necessarily because you can demonstrate it's true in an argument uh, or discussion with someone who opposes your belief. That's point one. Point two, there is an idea, same thing, but one step more extreme. Not merely that faith has an essentially unproven aspect to it, the leap into the unknown, the leap into the dark, but sometimes people argue that faith is faith because it's illogical. Because it's absurd. It's a common phrase in uh, books and articles about Jewish philosophy that no one in the history of Jewish philosophy thinks that way. The statement has been made a number of times. Jews never reached the point of irrationality that claims that belief is belief because something is absurd. The most famous expression of that position is attributed always to someone who's not Jewish. It's one of the church fathers, Tertullian, who said, I believe because it's absurd. And he specifically said it in relationship to both Jews and Greeks. He said, that which the Jews and the Greeks do not believe in, one because they think it's absurd, and one because they think it's scandalous, that is what we Christians believe in. We believe because, stressing the word because, it is absurd. And of course, there is a necessity for Christianity, or an attraction to Christianity, to reach that kind of position. Because the core beliefs of Christianity, uh, definitely to a Jew, appear to be not merely wrong, but appear to be absurd and scandalous and, and perhaps even ridiculous, the belief that God could become man. It's generally claimed that Jews do not accept that position. I'm not sure that's true. Uh, there might be some exceptions. Some of the writings, some of the statements attributed to Nachman Rebetzlov definitely uh, approached that position, almost a, a desire to show that something is absurd in order to, in the next line, to say, and that is what we believe. Surely in Rav Nachman there's no fear, there's no repulsion to approaching the area of the, of the illogical, of the absurd, of something which logically makes no sense. And there might very well be, in certain places, an attraction to reaching that point. The true believer ventures fearlessly and with joy into the area of the absurd. It's definitely an exception. It is definitely an exception. And in the Middle Ages, it's unknown. Even those who attacked Jewish philosophy in the Middle Ages, such as the Sefer Kuzari, Sefer Parts of the Ramban, the introduction to the Sefer, or Hashem of even when they attacked Jewish philosophy, they all stressed that that which can be shown to be illogical, that which rationally can be shown to be not true, cannot be part of the Jewish, of the Jewish belief. Philosophy, ration, rationality, reason, 
sets for all of them, without exception, the outer bounds of what can be included in belief. You cannot believe in the false. You cannot believe in that which is, un- which is untrue. A third variety of this argument says not that belief is essentially irrational or essentially unproven, but nonetheless that there's a psychological opposition between knowledge, rational knowledge, and belief. This argument simply compares simple faith. That's the word which comes to mind. Simple faith, the faith of the simple person, to the faith of the great philosopher. Or, if you wish, you compare the faith of a little child, the pure, simple faith of a child who believes in his father and his mother and his God, to the very complicated, more developed, more sophisticated, but somehow less pure, less simple in the fine sense of the word simple, faith of the great, of the great Jewish philosopher. I don't have the book in front of me now. There's a there's a section in the in the in the Tanya, where the Bible Tanya explicitly makes this point. I, I think it's I really should look this up. I think it's 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 Perak Samach Gimel, the first Chayrek. The Bible Tanya says that true faith is the faith of an animal. A person should aspire to believe the way a cow believes. Balatanya doesn't say how one reaches that faith, given the fact that we're not cows. And it might very well be, and obviously the Tanya is not an anti-philosophic book, in the sense that it's an anti-rational book. If it were that, it would be a much shorter book. It could be that it's very complicated, one has to do a great deal of thinking, and inner inner work on one's soul in order to reach in order to progress retroactively to the state of simple belief but nonetheless in terms of the comparison at the end the Baltanya says that the belief of a simple child the belief of a cow in the field is a higher degree a higher level of, uh, of belief he quotes Mamal Chazal Peti Ya'amin L'chol Davar most of us think is a negative statement about fools that a fool believes anything but Tanya explains the Mamar of Chazal differently and he says it means that belief true belief is the belief of a petty the fool truly believes petty ya'amin the fool has belief People who aren't fools, people who don't make themselves fools, people who don't turn their faith into the faith of fools, don't truly have the belief which the Torah or which Judaism is interested in. Very quickly, I'm leaving these points on the table. I'm leaving them for a few months. And we'll try to judge them at the end for ourselves. But very quickly, I'd like to review the basic attitude of the great figures that we will be discussing in the Middle Ages, some of them in any event, towards this question. I mentioned before the Rambam. The Rambam holds the opposite. The Rambam maintains that faith and knowledge are equivalent. They're identical. 
And knowledge means, for the Rambam, even more than it could be for us, the Rambam thinks that knowledge is knowledge which has been proven logically. The motto is geometry and pure philosophy. And therefore the Rambam not only has a proof to the existence of God in the beginning of the second Chedek of Mamen Nebuchim, first chapter, but he says explicitly that any belief not based on this proof for the no- of the existence of God is not faith, is not, is not emunah. The Rambam says in Mamen that if you believe because your parents taught you to believe, you don't believe in God. You believe in an idea found in your head. But you don't believe in the God who's really there, who's really in the heavens, or really outside yourself. Because nothing about that God has impinged itself, himself, on your consciousness. When you believe, when you see a wall, the wall, and you have a connection. When you believe in God because it's been proven, then intellectually you have a connection with God. But if you believe in something because you've been told to believe in it, and you accept that, you don't believe in anything at all. You believe in yourself. You believe in an idea that's found in your head. That's the Rambam. It's not a notion which is easy to defend today because of the basis in Aristotelian philosophy which it has. But in some sense, although not popular today, the Rambam's ideal is something which we should consider and we will consider in the, in the future. Taking less extreme attitudes. You mentioned of Chastay In my own personal opinion, the greatest Jewish philosopher after the Rambam. It's not always uh, accepted. It's not a universal opinion, but it is mine. Uh, and we'll be mentioning Rav often in this course. Rav introduces his book with an anti-philosophic polemic. He says about the Rambam, one of the first people to use his expression, which later on became more common, he says about the Rambam that ha-philosophia ha-arura hit-ay the evil the cursed philosophy, meaning of Satyrian philosophy, the cursed philosophy has, has distorted the Rambam's mind, the Rambam's uh, uh, beliefs. And he has a polemic against philosophy there. Nonetheless, Rav Chastai says that philosophy in general, proper thinking, rationality, is the container of any faith. The use of the word container means that the actual uh, contents of faith will include things which cannot be included in philosophy. The reason why the book is called Oh Hashem is because the deepest level of faith is dependent on the light of God that should shine on you. Something which is inner. In other words, prophecy, revelation, the Torah, etc. But nonetheless, philosophy is the container, meaning one, it defines the outer boundaries you can only have faith inside philosophy, but not outside philosophy. The point I mentioned before, if something is wrong philosophically, it can't be an object of faith. So one, philosophy prevents mistakes. It doesn't let you wander in areas which you shouldn't be wandering. But two, and this is exemplified throughout the book, Yal Hashem, philosophy is also the basis, the springboard for the extra, extra added content of the all Hashem, of the light of God. In other words, it's not merely a negative point. Don't go with what they told you not to go. But any decent faith, even for Rav Chastai, begins on the basis of what 
philosophy has founded, of what rationality has founded, of what thinking and understanding has founded. To believe without understanding is impossible, according to Avchastai, although to believe is more than to merely understand or to merely uh, rationally, rationally see. I mentioned a third example, someone who's considered sometimes, I think it's wrong, but sometimes it's listed as an anti-rationalist. And that's the Ramban. What happens in discussions when one learns different things that there's this, there's this radical division. You learn Jewish philosophy, so you learn the Ramban. When we learn Gemara, we learn Ramban. And there are these two parts of our mind. Who is the greatest figure of Spanish Jewry? Well, it's the Ramban. He was the greatest Talmudist in Spain. The greatest Talmudist. Then you say, well, who is the greatest figure of Jewish philosophy who came out of Spain? He didn't actually live in Spain afterwards. You say the Ramban. The Ramban is a great figure of Jewish philosophy, of Jewish Mahashava. But he's an, anti, he's an anti-philosopher, meaning he's against the Aristotelian philosophy. He's very often listed as being an anti-rationalist. I think that's a tremendous exaggeration. If one looks in the Ramban, the Ramban all the time in the Pirush Al-Tarah cites principles that he learned from the Ramban, they learned from Nonavuchah. The Ramban's rather unique attitude towards understanding Torah and relating to God is that one can operate on at least two levels. I say at least because it could be there more than two. Just as one, one learns a pasuk in the Torah, there's the pshat, al derech pshat in the Ramban's language, and then there is sometimes al derech emet, meaning al derech kabbalah, a kabbalistic understanding. And the second doesn't override the first. The same thing is true of a philosophical understanding. The Ramban says often that this is what our rationality teaches us, and it's correct and true, and a valid and important level, but there's also a deeper level. I think what I quoted before from Professor Kreskas is a sort of a translation of the Ramban's principles, of Chastai lived 100 years after the Ramban, more than 100 years after the Ramban, a translation of the Ramban's principles into more philosophic terms. The Ramban is speaking on the relationship between philosophy and Kabbalah. He doesn't say that Kabbalah is anti-philosophy. He says Kabbalah is deeper philosophy. But if one doesn't go through the philosophical training and understanding and argumentation and discussion, one cannot reach the deeper level that Ramban is holding out in his hints or subsequently other Mekubalim, other adherents of Kabbalah could possibly teach us. But nonetheless, philosophy is at least the first, at least, at least the first step. Ramban doesn't explain why. What I suggest, what I would like to suggest, what I suspect, is similar to what I said in the name of Avchastai, one, philosophy prevents straying where one shouldn't be. But two, is that the philosophical understanding is also the beginning, the clarity of philosophical understanding is a sine qua non to going deeper. Deeper understandings, if it's Kabbalah, or deeper understandings in terms of one's soul, one's, one's mental connection to God above and beyond the 
content of a particular philosophical understanding to be written in a book that might be and is a goal but it's a step that's within and above and through clarity of philosophical thought. It's not merely that one shouldn't say things that are absurd, it's that there's a process of deepening a relationship to God is a process of deepening our philosophical understanding beyond what pure philosophy perhaps could say. And that's really my goal in, uh, in these lectures, in these uh, shiurim, which we'll be uh, participating in together. Very often we will engage in controversies and disputes just like in Gemara, in Jewish philosophy, there are many opinions and violent arguments between the figures that we'll be studying. It's not so much that we're trying to find out what is the bottom line truth, the dogmas of Jewish belief. What we're trying to do is to clarify our understanding because the clarity of understanding, I hope, personally I believe, and I hope show the relationship with God of the Munah of Bitachon of faith and belief is deepened not because now you think correctly and before you thought incorrectly but the very process of understanding better the issues involved that very process will enable us help us achieve a deeper relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We will begin next week and each week discussing various issues. Uh, we're not going to do this historically in terms of one thinker after another. I'd like to raise certain topics and view them. This is more or less the way one would learn a topic, say, in Halakha or Gemara. You learn Sugyot. You ask a question and you see the different opinions. I'm going to raise different topics and try to examine them in light of the various answers, the various writings, the various arguments made by the great figures of medieval Jewish philosophy, which is the basis for all philosophical discussions which came in the years in the years after. Thank you very much. The cold tooth.